millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you by the show's amazingly generous Patreon supporters. Even while the show is on hiatus, supporters will still get bonus audio and behind-the-scenes updates. You can learn more at patreon.com slash secretlibrary. Just two more episodes to go, including this one, before we take our big hiatus. But I didn't want to leave you hanging through the rest of the year. So I wanted to share a few shows that I love, and I definitely recommend them in order to stay inspired and keep listening to shows and information that will keep you excited to write. So some shows that I think you should subscribe to and have on your listening queue um, for the rest of 2019 while The Secret Library is on hiatus are Marginally, you may remember, I've been on a few times. It's a great show. Same with M Writing. It's a great one to keep you fired up and connected to your writing, as well as the creative pen and the writer's well. I know the hosts of all of these shows, and I think they're wonderful, and I think that you should check them out. And I hope that this break is an opportunity for you to start listening to those shows as well. Okay, here we go. This is episode 156 of the Secret Library Podcast. My guest this week is Meg Willitzer, the New York Times bestselling author of The Interestings, The Uncoupling, The Ten-Year Nap, The Position, The Wife, and Sleepwalking. She's also the author of the young adult novel, Belhazar, and her most recent novel, The Female Persuasion, is now out in paperback. Willitzer is an instructor in the MFA program at Stony Brook Southampton, and she lives in New York City. I was delighted to get Meg, obviously, because her books are wonderful, but also because there is something fascinating to me about a writer who has written books for a really long time and has had kind of the hockey stick curve up where everyone knows her books now and everyone is looking at them. And obviously with the incredible cover of The Female Persuasion, I I can't get it out of my mind. It's so lively and memorable. And so this book has been everywhere. And so I wondered how, as someone who has been writing for a long time and who's also a, a teacher of writing, how that has impacted her work and what it's been like to move from a more private sphere into a more public one. And I was really reassured by the conversation that we had and learned so much from talking to Meg. So I know you're going to love her and I'm delighted that she is the last guest before we go on hiatus. So here we go with Meg Willitzer. Hi Meg, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. So I always love talking to someone when a book has gone into paperback, because then you get to see 
both the experience of having written the book, but also the experience of, of watching it out in the world for a while before reflecting on it again. And I'm mm -hmm. wondering, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, you picked a provocative title. There's a lot of issues inside of the book, but also it's just a human story inside of all of that. So I'm wondering how it has been experiencing the female persuasion out in the world over the past year and how has your relationship changed with it? Well, you know, when you first write a book, uh, you haven't answered the questions a lot from people. So it's very, very fresh. And also you've been doing so much editing on the book. So you're very, very close to the process. It's almost like this gives you a chance to continue in a way that they actually ripped the book from your cold dead hands when they, <laughs> uh, you know, for production. But as time goes on, I think you hear questions from readers and you might start to reframe the book a little bit because you see the ways in which it's being received. Um, sometimes that's different even from the ways that you sort of were thinking about it. So I love that kind of slow change that might take place um, over you know, over time. And I think that's really a terrific thing about publishing a book. The conversation can shift. Definitely. How has it changed for this book? Is there anything, did you get any questions from anyone while they were reading where you thought, oh, I didn't even really think about it that way? Has anything surprised you over this process? Well, the one thing that kept coming up that was funny, this is a small thing, um, was the name Greer of my protagonist, Greer Kadetsky. Mm -hmm. Since the book deals with issues around feminism, um, you know, Jermaine uh, Greer was a formative second wave, is a is, was a formative second wave feminist. I mean, she's changed a lot in her, you know, the things she said over the decades, but I honestly originally wasn't thinking of her, although I think the mind is a very tricky place, but mm -hmm. everyone thinks, oh, clever. She absolutely did that on purpose. I didn't, but then the minute I, you know, thought it was a great name, I like the hard consonants more than, than that it was a nod to Jermaine Greer. Of course, I realized that in you know, part of my mind, that is really why it was there. But it wasn't the initial thing. But I, I really, I'm a big believer in sort of subconscious thinking. So that's one thing that has come up quite a bit. That's funny. I think that's one of the most satisfying things. And also the trickiest things is to name characters well. And yeah. How was the process for you? Because you were creating, I mean, Faith Frank is an, another name that's really satisfying to say, and she's supposed to have an iconic presence. How was the process coming up with these people and, and giving them the right names? I really love coming up with characters. Somebody said that what we remember of the novels we love isn't plot, but character. And I tend to agree for my own self and my own reading interests. It isn't true for all books at all. Um, with, you know, with more experimental novels, there's you know, and, and also language is so incredibly important to me, but the characters loom large and their names matter too. I mean, when I was a child, I thought there was a job naming streets. So I would fill notebooks <laughs> like Greenwood Circle and think that I was going to make my fortune with street naming. Little did I know you kind of had to be a developer to get to do that. But I guess this is the equivalent, which is really coming up with the right, you know, uh, label for a person you only have, you know, somewhere between three and 600 pages to have the reader get to know, or less than that or more than that. But um, I knew that the mellifluousness of the name 
Faith Frank felt right because I saw her as, you know, I saw her through Greer Kadetsky's eyes. She's an older woman. She's a feminist. She's a second waver. Greer is very sort of romantic about her. So I wanted to give her a name that felt that way too. That's great. So I'm interested because you've you've talked a lot about how there is a difference in how fiction written by women ha- is received and, and the kind of critical acclaim and experience that it has and that you chose the title The Female Persuasion deliberately. I'm wondering how it's possible to balance sort of the desire to address something that you, you feel very passionately about and also to take care of yourself as a writer who's fundamentally writing a story, as you say, about characters that you care about. How did you find it sort of balancing both sides of your brain, so to speak? I kind of have to trust that the things that interest me and excite me aren't so freakishly my own only that they won't be of interest to some readers. Um, I, you know, yeah, I did write in my essay, The Second Shelf for the New York Times Book Review, about the different ways that fiction by women and men have been treated and are treated. But I think with, in the case of the title, The Female Persuasion, in a sense, I'm almost testing the ideas. Can, you know, can a book that has that in the title be seen as something other than women's fiction, which is a category I particularly, I personally don't love. Other writers don't mind it at all. I have a friend who says, look, my readers are are women. So if that's easier, if that's an easier way for them to find my book, I don't care. I don't feel that way. I mean, I do have, you know, a lot of male readers, but it it wouldn't even matter to me because I feel that books are kind of um, equal opportunities, experiences, and the idea of a novel kind of saying, men stay away or women stay, or, you know, or just some group stay away. This isn't really for you really, um, doesn't sit right with me. So to sort of say, well, you know, this is what I'm writing about. How do we influence each other? And this book is a book about women. Um, let's see what happens if I put that out in the world. I can only write about the things that I'm passionate about. That's true. I think it's always a tricky thing because I think there does have to be a sort of trust that exists that obviously the things that you care about are going to inform what you're writing. And so I'm interested in how Greer and Faith first came to you as an idea for a story. Did they come fully formed? Did one of them come first? How did you build your relationship with them? Um, you know, I don't think anyone ever comes from me fully formed. I don't really think that that's the way I work. But I had Greer, a shy young woman who has an experience, something happens to her at a frat party, and she wants to know what is this thing that happened? Do I have a right to feel upset about it? You know what I'm saying? Um, Mm -hmm. Do I have a, you know, was it an assault? She's groped by a frat brother at a party. Was it an assault? Was it just something that I have to just get used to being a woman in the world? And she doesn't know how to talk about it. And she hears that this famous second wave feminist, kind of a figure from the past, from the 70s, because it's now 2006, is coming to speak at her college. And she wants to go and ask her, what can I do about this way that I feel, this shitty way that I feel about this, about things, about the relationships between men and women and the possibilities in the world. Um, But I feel it's almost like that children's book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. If you create a a shy young woman to whom this has happened, um, you know, can 
you know, in the book, it's like, if you give a massive cookie, you'll probably want a glass of milk. If you give the world Greer Kadetsky, this shy, blushing young woman who doesn't know how to speak, isn't it possible that an older, charismatic woman who does know how to speak will come along next? And that is the way that it happened for me. It was almost kind of a chain. Interesting. And it is interesting when she first speaks to Faith Frank, I mean, she asks her a question in in a public forum, but then they're able to continue the conversation in private. And I was really struck by Greer having very little experience with Faith Frank, not knowing her versus her roommate who has a lot of feelings about, about Faith and they kind of ambush her in the, in the loo basically and have this conversation and how Greer's kind of lack of sort of control over what she was saying was the thing that really moved Faith rather than her roommate Z who had almost a prepared speech that she kind of spits out of like, I'm presented with my hero. I must tell her how important she is. Yeah. I think that the experience of meeting someone like Z might be more familiar to Faith than someone who was there in a very conflicted, for conflicted reasons, because if something happened to her, it wasn't just that she's excited to meet this feminist hero or heroine. Um, And I think that that strikes something in Faith. Also, Faith sees something in her that she recognizes from her own past, a conflict with parents. And that's something that's, of course, would be common to a lot of young people. But Faith is somehow affected by it. But we don't really know this till much later in the book. Yes. I think something also that I was struck with, and it's always this this tension, I think, and I'm wondering how you feel about it as a woman who's written many books, is there's this tension of there's the responsibility of handling a new topic. There are so many books that men have written about, like a young up-and-coming guy who's taken on by a more experienced guy who then sort of shows them the ropes. I mean, we all know these stories in these films, but the ones that have to do with women are often not about a profession, so to speak, or it's about some woman squashing another woman down in the sort of guise of leading her along. And so it's a it's a topic that's underserved and and is important and feels important as you're reading it. And I'm wondering how it is for you as the writer to sit there kind of knowing this as a professional and also still giving yourself space to write and enjoy the process of writing your book rather than feeling like it's a book with quotation marks and underline and bold and all of that happening at the same time. I don't think I would ever write a book because I felt commercially there was you know, an opening. Oh, I should fill that opening. There's something about, you know, that, that almost would be kind of a a trying to game the system. And I don't ever approach fiction that way. I think that it only really works well if you write about something that you are really excited about. And if there have been 10 books written about that subject, yours will be different. You know, I mean, I wrote a novel called The Interestings that has a group of friends that we follow over time. And surely there have been books about groups of friends. Um, But I just knew that that was where my mind was and what I wanted to explore. And I would explore it in my own way. So I guess I felt um, while I was writing, I did start to think about some of the things you're saying, like, has this been written about in that way? No, no. and I don't know that I have more or less of a responsibility to do it in, uh, you know, a unique way. I always want to do it, I guess, in a unique way. But yeah, I think that 
stuff between women has often been, um, I think about like a movie like um, All About Eve or you mm-hmm. know, there have been films in my mind or that other one. Uh, oh, gosh. Now, Rich and Famous. Do you remember that movie? with? Uh. No, it's before your time, I'm sure. But Jacqueline Bissett and Candace Bergen and friends and, you know, just this idea of one person supplanting another and the sort of um, the kind of anger and excitement and jealousies around that. I mean, it's not to say that that there aren't issues around those things. But what about really the feeling of a mentor toward a protege of just wanting to help out? I mean, I, I feel that that's a real thing. And I, yeah, I guess as I began writing it, I, I wasn't looking to too many books. I mean, I don't generally, I try to sort of stay in my own little terrarium, but yeah, one where it's not about a monster. I mean, there are betrayals in this book, absolutely. And a big betrayal, two big betrayals at the end, but I don't, but I think these are decent and very, very flawed people who make mistakes. Yeah, and I think in in any case, real characters are always flawed people who make mistakes. I think if we wrote about perfect people who never make any mistakes, we'd have very boring books on our hands. Yeah, sure. What was, what has it been like? Because, I mean, one thing that I loved learning about you is that you published the first thing you ever published at the age of 11, which is amazing. Yes. (laughs) So you've been you've been publishing for quite some time and, and putting yourself out in, in different degrees. But it seems like each book you put out beca- takes up a larger and larger place. And I'm wondering, how does that influence your writing process? Because on the one hand, it's wonderful to have lots of impact and lots of reach. And I, I wonder if it's, you know, if it changes the way that you write or the way that you think while you're writing. I really hope it doesn't change the way I write having a, you know, a large or larger readership. Um, I, I hope it doesn't because I think that the reason that any writer finds an audience is that the thing that they were passionate about resonates with that readership. So it's not, Oh, you're, you know, you're trying to see what your readership likes. It's what do you like? What, what excites you to explore as a writer? And with a little luck, there will be a kind of Venn diagram overlap. So I, I don't see it as changing things, but it's moving to me to meet readers more easily uh, who, you know, read your work and to have a sense of it having an effect. But I'm really hoping that it doesn't change what I write. I, I, I do hope that. I, I, I hope so, too. I think it's just something that <clears throat> there's something about the comfort of feeling somewhat anonymous in certain situations and that as that's you know, as that disappears, there's, there's other comforts that supplant that, but I'm always interested in, in the impact that has. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely gone, but I think the internet made that gone. I'm, <laughs> I'm, big, I'm not a very big social media person. I do tweet and put things up, but mostly when I have something new or in support of a writer alike, but I don't, I, I kind of feel like when I'm writing, I need to sort of conserve my energy for these books that I've been writing. Um, and I, uh, but it, but definitely the response and the responsiveness that readers have that's so immediate makes you really aware of your place in, in that world that, that it matters to readers 
when a writer has a new book. And if you announce or if your publisher announces that you have a book coming out and you hear from people, you know, there's something amazing about that because for years before that happened, and even before I had the readership that I have now, I was doing it anyway. I mean, you know, you can feel like you're writing into a void, but if you're writing, you're doing it anyway. You're trying to explore these things. But once in a while, it's like to get a signal back, hello, I'm out there. You know, it just gives you a little bit of a spring in your step when your book comes out. And that, that's been a very fortunate experience for me to have. That's great. And you've also had the experience of teaching other writers and sort of serving, probably not in the same way as Faith Frank, but but serving as a mentor yourself to other writers. And I'm wondering what you're seeing through through that lens and how it impacts looking at the writing process and how you're looking at other generations of writers and how that's shifting. Yeah, you know, I've done a lot of teaching. I've taught various places and I currently, um, I'm the the co-founder, I guess, and director of a program called Bookends, which is uh, through Stony Brook Southampton. Uh, it's part of their MFA program, but it's a non-credit course where we work with writers who have a novel, often one that they did with their MFA or even one that they did on their own that is really good, but not ready to go out in the world. And they know that it needs something more, but they're not necessarily sure what. And we, we work with them and put them in small groups and we connect them with mentors. And my feeling, you know, over the past two years working with this program has been kind of illuminating because I really see the way we help one another. Um, I, you know, I was, I didn't go to graduate school. I don't have an MFA, but I did take writing workshops as an undergraduate. And I did have writing teachers who helped me so much. And honestly, something that someone says to you or that you can say to someone else can really make all the difference. And it's shocking and wonderful to see that. I have a student, a former student who then became my assistant, who has just sold her novel. And it's absolutely wonderful to see. And I was thinking about it because my novel, The Female Persuasion, does in fact have, you know, in its title, a kind of pun about the idea of mentorship, of persuading one another. How do we as women persuade one another? And I was thinking of that in terms of this young woman, because I just, what do I get from it? It just makes me feel, um, it's not, it just makes me feel excited about writing generally. And that there is something that we're all, it's like all hands on deck, Mm. you know, because we live in a, in a world that isn't fiction based, that doesn't talk about novels in this enormous way. The amount of money and, and readers even that a novel has compared with what films have, you know, we're talking about a really small percentage of the population, even the reading population, when you're talking about sort of novels, uh, and it's, you know, or certain kinds of novels. So I sort of feel that we're, you know, we're just sort of trying to figure out how to get wonderful work in front of readers and, um, helping one another do that. It comes pretty naturally to most of the people I know. I think it's wonderful to hear examples about this because I think we we have these stereotypes in our head of, of people competing and any of us who've been to any kind of art school have sometimes memories of these critiques of, you know, 
fear of being torn to shreds when encountering other people in service of, you know, quote, making it better. And I always like to hear stories about the contrary. I'm wondering if you can share anything about what you're seeing. I love this sort of window of books that are very good, but they're not yet ready to go out. And if you can share anything that you see theme-wise, is there anything in particular that you see that they just needed in order to get that last way? I'm sure everybody is eager to hear what these what these steps are. I guess I feel one thing that happens, and I've actually, um, one of the classes that I have taught a couple of times through um, the Summer Writers Workshop in Southampton and also in their MFA program, I called something like the soggy middle or the mushy middle. (laughs) You know, and if you're writing, if you've written a novel, you might already know what I'm talking about because I, from personal experience, do. You have a certain energy at the beginning of writing. And I feel as if a lot of novels enter, enter the world by which I mean, not the, not the reading public world, but the, you know, the page of the, for the writer, the writer's, uh, you know, sort of blinking cursor page, uh, as grandiose fantasies, which is good. I I don't even mean that in a, in a pejorative way that you have an exciting, exciting and excited idea around, I want to explore what is female power? What, how do we influence one another? What about making meaning in the world? Those are some of the ideas that I did think about with this novel. Also with my novel, The Wife, what about male power and female complicity? Oh, how can I explore that? So I'm sort of thinking about an idea like that. And that can take me a very pretty great distance. I have a lot that I've been storing up in my cheeks like nuts for the winter. (laughs) Then I might get to a point where I have explored that rather deeply, but now I'm only what, you know, 40 pages in, what do I do now? 80 pages in, what am I going to do now? And there can be, um, or even a hundred or 200 pages in whatever it is. Um, you might start to be repetitive. So I think there's a certain kind of repetition and a, a fight between the idea of moving forward in a swift and plot-based way and exploring things and, and being leisurely, thinking, is that slow? Is that fast? What is the point of the rest of the book? And that's when I, you know, receive writers for triage. You know, that's the point <laughs> that really, right, in my urgent care, fiction urgent care workshop, walk-in, you know, um, and I think it's fairly familiar to all of us who've been working this idea that the there can be a slackness in the middle of a book or after the idea has been sort of the tracks of the idea have been laid down. Yes, I think I think that's true. I think it can happen both for the reader and for the writer. It's sort of this moment, yeah, where the idea is there, but then it's it's what am I going to do? And I think that question is always, you know, it's different for every book too. Yeah. Every book is really different. Um, And I think sometimes, and the reasons for that sort of slack middle are really different. So I don't approach them the same way. We need to sort of look at, I've, I've maintained that sometimes that mushy middle has to do with the fact that something really hasn't been set up correctly in the beginning. It's not like, you know, there's something that you haven't explored fully in the beginning that you can go back and do, and that will 
now proceeding again into the middle, perhaps change things. What kind of questions are you asking at that point to sort of figure out what might not have been set up correctly? Like, let's say you've gotten to page 75 and you're rah, rah up to that point, like this is going great. And then there's the moment of, oh dear, what are are the things that you start thinking at that point or questions that you ask yourself? Well, one of the things, and this is something that I really have done quite a bit with my editor, um, who's been my editor uh, since I wrote The Wife, uh, is the, is a very simple question, which is, what is this book about? Mm. What is it? And then what is it really about? We'll have a very long lunch where we're kind of talking about that. And I said in horror the other day to a couple of people, yeah, but it's not only that, it's what is it really, really about? I mean, you can Uh-oh. really go further with that one. And if, in fact, that isn't happening, that sort of exploration of what is it really about isn't happening on a micro level within the chapters, within the paragraphs, within the lines, within the exploration of character, I just start to ask the writer, why isn't it? Um, Maybe look there. Are you not really exploring that? Are you going off on things because they are, you know, proverbial darlings? Are you going off on them because you love them and you're interested in them, but you're not really staying with the idea of the thing that you originally said you wanted to explore? So I think that original exploration, if in fact it's really sturdy, you should sort of hold on to it and think about how it can actually serve you throughout the book. So I think maybe one way is, is to just look at the original intent. What is the word that I like to use a lot is imperative. What is your imperative? And if you've moved away from it, well, frankly, you may have found that it's not actually the imperative of the book. So that's one thing that can happen, but you may have moved away from, you know, you may have another one and then you're going to go back, but you may also find that you're not actually exploring that you kind of forgot about it. You know, it's like, do you, have you ever seen that card that has a kind of Roy Lichtenstein sort of drawing and it's a woman taking a shower oh. and the bubble is, oh my God, I forgot to have children. Right. Sort of that, um, oh my God, I forgot to write a novel about female power or whatever you're, you are writing about. And then you kind of like, oh no, I was writing this book about, about, you know, the pains of whatever. And now I'm writing a book about a carousel and there's none of that pain in it that I wanted to do. You stop there and you might say, is it that this carousel book isn't about pain? And I have learned that that's really where my imperative lies. Or have I moved away from my imperative without even noticing it sort of like gaining weight. And now I need to go back and look at what I've done. You know, it's like, there are ways that things happen, you know, to our bodies, to our minds that we didn't know were happening. But then when you take stock, you see where you are. And it may be absolutely something that you're just noting. I'm not saying you're just noting where you are in the world. That's right. I'm a person who weighs more now. Fine. Or I am writing this novel that is about this. It is not what I thought I was going to do. Or I have let, you know, I have let this friendship go fallow. I think that those are things that, you know, in a weird way, there's almost a mindfulness aspect to it. I'm not saying, oh, no, then you must change it. I'm saying to writers, be aware 
of what you're doing and what you've done, I think it's maybe an awareness that, that moves away sometimes in the middle of a book. Be aware of what the imperative was, what it seems to be now. Is there an imperative now? And I have made very big changes in my own work um, when I realized that I have moved away from something that I really wanted to explore. I love this image. It almost makes me think of, you know, descriptions of certain kinds of meditation practice. Like when you said yeah. mindfulness, like, okay, <clears throat> focus on the breath, keep going. And then suddenly you're planning your grocery list. I think yeah. it, it makes perfect sense that this could happen just as easily with a book. Keep writing, keep writing. And I think so often the imperative is is just keep going. But I mean, there's so many, there's an infinite number of directions you could go when writing a book. So you have to pay attention and make sure that you're still going in the direction that you want to go in. Yeah, I do think so. I think it's, a, I think that mindfulness is a really great analogy here because just the idea of being free, you know, feel, feeling very free, but being aware every once in a while that you've gone somewhere that's off, you know, that's not going to serve you and you cannot beat up your, you don't need to be, you know, to throw it aside, but you can say, I wonder why I went there and now I'm going to kind of go back to what I meant to do and it might look a little different. Yeah, you might find something entirely new because it's true that when you have an idea and you start writing it, of course, your awareness of how that works changes. Like the process yeah. of writing the book always changes the book a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that more, I think the analogy of mindfulness works best really only as a sort of what the writing technique looks like to get into that mind, you know, of being, of writing and doing a novel. But finally, what happens for me, at least, I mean, I... I tell writers when I when I teach to sort of, you know, say the first 80 pages are really about that exploration of the thing that you were very excited about to begin with. But, you know, I, I, I often think that people might stop after that point and go back and look at what they've done and recognize that it's not, you know, and now start to reckon with what they have done rather than what they thought they were doing. And it can look really different. And that's when you make your peace with the loss of the grandiose fantasy and you cross things out and you lose some of your best writing and, you know, save it for a rainy day or your next book or, or later in the book. Um, but you see what it is you really you're you're becoming interested in exploring and you you have a little bit of grief because that that excitement around the big idea might have shifted. It might become another big idea or it might be a more modest one. But what are you telling yourself to write? And that's when I really kind of do a lot of crossing out. And then I kind of make something of an emotional outline for the rest of the book. And I, I've joked a lot that an outline for me is sort of like an EpiPen. You may <laughs> not use it, but it's good to know that you have it. That's great. Can you say more about what an emotional outline is? Yeah. Um, I have never been someone who has had a lot of structure in my outlining or even thinking of plot. I, I've never been all that interested in it. And it's not to say that it isn't an important way for other people to work. And I, and, you know, particularly with, you know, novels that have historical events in them, uh, you know, they might approach it very, very differently. So the outline that I would make is more one that allows me 
to make sure that sort of everyone in the book is being fed the right amounts that I, I really kind of, um, I mean, I've never put it that way before, but <laughs> free associating here, as you can hear. But I think it's that everything that I wanted to do in the book is being done, which means if I have written seven chapters about one character and one about another, but I haven't been able to really express what it is in that other in that one chapter character, I want to remind myself that she needs more than that. She needs an overlap with that seven character, seven chapter character. So in fact, well, maybe one of the chapters of that other character that doesn't include this character who I've treated in a more minor way would be about the two of them. And I can only see it when I'm looking at it, you know, sort of as, as an outline. That's right. That's not enough time to really show her recovery from that accident, you know, and then I'll, then I'll work with them together, perhaps. I love it. I also love the idea of an outline as an EpiPen. Yeah. And- I think they do make a difference. They do. It's just, it's almost like, I think of them a little bit like a blankie. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, I feel like it's here. I don't necessarily need it. But if I get scared, I can hold on to it. And I can keep going with that in mind. Yeah, you need whatever, whatever provisions will help. And, And I think that knowing that there is a larger, you know, view of the book, you know, it's like, a Google Maps of the Google Earth that you can look down on the Earth of this book, and instead of looking up from from within it, you have different views of it that might be helpful at different points. is is essential. That's incredible. I I'm going to think about that from now on, and I'm I'm so grateful for that image, and I'm so grateful that we had this time to speak. Um, and that we got to hear more about the process of both the female persuasion and your writing in general. Thank you so, so much. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram, where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.